This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. At the end of the day, we are talking about a very small faction of folks that are, are pushing so much of this and making sure that folks know uh, that that is not the norm in a democracy, that is not the norm in our democracy, that the overwhelming number of people reject these claims, reject these ideas. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. My guest today is Asosa Osa, the Deputy Director of Fair Fight Action, an organization founded by Stacey Abrams that advocates for election reform. Asosa is also a good friend and has been a guest host on this show. When it comes to defending democracy, she represents that rare combination of strategic thinker and frontline fighter. Asosa, we have lots to defend these days. Great having you back on. Thank you so much, Ken. Happy to be here. First of all, um, what do you make of the dramatic swings in overall voter sentiment uh, just these past few months, especially after uh, Roe v. Wade was struck down? I think that there's just an extraordinary amount of resolve and dedication and momentum that we're seeing from voters across the country and in Georgia as we experience this democratic backsliding and as rights are, are, are being taken away, um, starting with, uh, we saw it with voting, we've seen it with freedom of speech, freedom to protest, we've seen it with the Roe decision. We will likely continue to see that to play out. And so as we are in this critical time for our democracy, it's not a surprise to me that people are becoming more aware and determined to um, make their voices heard. I'm seeing that same resolve, and it gives me incredible hope. But we're up against some pretty stiff structural headwinds, which is what I want to spend most of our time talking about. This information economy we now live in denies us even a, a shared sense of Reality. We had Dan Pfeiffer on uh, recently who said we've moved from this period of, of arguing about shared values or shared identity into arguing about what's even real. And this is, this is an area that you spend a lot of time and attention on, the disinformation ecosystem. I'll pause there to get your quick thoughts, but I've got a bunch of specific questions I want to put to you. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think we are are seeing a really troubling increase in bad information, um, manipulative information across our general information spectrum. And it's been happening for years. And a lot of it's disinformation. That's a specific term that essentially means lies with the intent to lie. 
and why it's so dangerous for a few reasons. And, and the first is really that it is incredibly difficult to correct the first thing that people hear about a topic or a subject. Um, that's a, um, we need you to forget the pink elephant in the room type of situation. And two, our brains work the same way writ large. Uh, how we learn, how we collect information. And, and the most important part of that is that the more times we hear something, the more likely we are to believe that it is true and to believe others believe it's true. And so when you have lies that are amplified um, at the highest levels of our democracy, it is not surprising that a lot of people will believe those lies. Uh, and it is not something that one type of person is more likely to believe than, than others. It is something that is very dangerous, very toxic, um, uh, self-perpetuating, extremely hard to correct. In societies that have freedom of speech, this is a, a very corrosive type of thing to inject in that type of society because it's very difficult to limit any of those lies. And so we are seeing the impact of what can happen when you have a massive platform and you can tell people um, things that are not true. And the second someone believes one type of disinformation, it becomes extremely, extremely, becomes much easier to get them to believe other types of disinformation. It becomes easier for them to mistrust and to have a distrust of of society, of their community, of institutions writ large. Um, and it's a, a really, really, really difficult thing to stop or, or turn back. Can you talk a little bit about that freedom of speech trade-off? Because within the, the legal academy, which is my background, there's this idea that the answer to offensive speech is more speech. In other words, the way to counter hateful rhetoric and misinformation is to make sure that reliable information has a chance to compete. Is that just hopelessly naive in this day and age? I think it is a, a hopeful take on a former world. Um, and again, it depends on what we're talking about and when we're talking about it. Um, we had um, four years of the person with the highest reach, the biggest platform, the president of the United States telling lies on the largest stage. It is very difficult to trump the largest amplification position in the world. And we are in a situation where as uh, uh, online information very, very much disrupts uh, the equilibrium of what we're talking about. We know that when lies can spread as quickly as they can spread um, online, that, hey, if we could get the truth to spread as quickly, you know, maybe we'd have an argument there, but that's not the way these platforms work. That's not the way we are wired to share information. And folks that are trying to push out more truth in order to kind of combat those lies are at a structural disadvantage when it comes to how social media platforms in this day and age just operate. Let's talk about how they operate because the, I think the naivete among the First Amendment zealots, and I'm quite a zealot when it comes to the First Amendment, but I'd like to think I'm realistic as well, is that the marketplace of ideas can handle this, but that only applies if there's a competitive marketplace. 
How do the platforms we're talking about, let's start with Facebook, undermine the marketplace of ideas? How do they manipulate human psychology to amplify disinformation? That's a great question. And I think one of the statistics that kind of shows this is Facebook's own data, their own research, has shown that 64% of the people that joined a militia group on Facebook did so because of Facebook's recommendation systems that led them there. So well over half of the people that are joining extraordinarily problematic and violent groups on this platform are Facebook themselves, I said, are only doing so because we have led them there. And it's not a free marketplace of, of ideas if people don't have access to the full marketplace or that marketplace is not reflective of society. These, these platforms are not reflective of what's going on in society. It is not like going to a public square in your community where there would be people of all types of backgrounds or ideas where people of, of, with all types of voices could speak. They, they are pushing people into tribes and amplifying the most emotional of the types of messages that are pushed, and they are changing behavior um, to prey on fears and stoke grievances that lead those that are most susceptible to this type of manipulation and down a very dangerous path. That is not what happens in the public square um, at all. And they're doing it for profit. I mean, this isn't, you could certainly ascribe mal- intent uh, to some of the the execs and operators, but what's behind it is the market pressure to keep eyeballs on the platform, to generate clicks, uh, and these kinds of algorithms do that, right? It's about money. It's, it's, a, it's about money, and it's about, and to your point, what brings that profit is increasing levels of engagement. And we know, and Facebook knows, and all these platforms know, that the way to engage people, that those types of emotions that um, are going to lead people to stay on your platform, to not move to another platform, are um, a lot of that is fear, is anger, um, is outrage, um, some in a small in, a, in an unfortunate smaller percentage of that is like oh this makes me really happy, um, and so I made an effort on my own Facebook page to constantly like like I'm talking baby pictures I'm talking community <laughs> stuff I'm talking pictures of cats and dogs <laughs> yes it is uh, uh, like an actual effort to tell Facebook that these are the posts that I like and what was so surprising was to see during, I would say, the peak of the COVID vaccine versus not vaccine uh, debate that was being had, to see Facebook actually start sending me notifications of when the people that were Facebook friends that were anti-vax, when, not only whenever they posted, but whenever they replied to a post. And I found it incredibly disturbing that Facebook not only was tr- was actively trying to send me to the Facebook friends I had that would make me most angry or make me most upset, 
I'm not going to engage with this content. I'm not going to try to have a battle with a Facebook friend on whether or not um, and why I disagree with their uh, vaccine views. But it wasn't even that they were showing it to me in my feed. They were literally sending me notifications. We want you to click on this. We want you to see this. We think this is better. This is the type of content that you want. And I just found that to be both fascinating and disturbing. Because if that's what they're showing me, um, what are they showing my friends, my family, my community? So if the marketplace of ideas isn't sufficient any longer to allow the truth to bubble up to the top, to over time put down the disinformation campaigns because, you know, bad info is, uh, is punished. Well, no longer, but that's how the marketplace of ideas used to work. What do we do about it? We're, we're getting to, to regulation here, right? This is not a free marketplace anymore. They don't function in the presence of monopolies. What's the alternative? So there is obviously a need to hold social media platforms accountable in a way that um, we are fundamentally, we seem to be unwilling to do. That means um, holding them to the same standards as we hold news organizations. That means, in many cases, breaking them up. I think all of the um, the remedies are known um, and have been known for, for a while. It, it requires a will, and it also requires us to not let these platforms off the hook when we see um, when people that are committing atrocities with guns in our society are using these platforms to spread that type of content, making it very, uh, not letting those platforms off the hook when those types of things happen, demanding accountability when those types of things happen, when we see hate spreading on these platforms, um, holding them accountable when we see ads, when we see Facebook allowing the worst of the worst of society to advertise um, inside private groups to to, um, make sure we're holding them accountable. So there's a we need to hold, we need to be very serious and consistently pressure these platforms and have regulation around these platforms. Absolutely. But there is a broader societal problem here that has become worse from what the platforms have done, from what individuals have done, from the propaganda that has spread in society. And this is why spreading disinformation in a democracy is so dangerous, because the solution for that is to broadly raise the level of skepticism in a community, in a society, to increase the level of uh, the likelihood that someone probes the information that they see, that uh, double checks to not believe the first thing that they see. And the problem with fundamentally raising or increasing the level of skepticism of an entire community, of an entire society, is it makes you um, you have to increase that level of skepticism for everything, including our institutions, including our leaders, including what we consider to be our, our very kind of foundation as a country. And so there's a reason that bad actors, anti-democratic actors push propaganda, push disinformation into democracies, um, because the fix for it is to, uh, the consequence of the fix for it is to lessen people's belief that democracy is actually the answer, lessen people's trust in institutions writ large. And that's what you see in a lot of the countries that have um, 
the few that have successfully kind of pushed this back. Um, that's what we're likely to see here. I'd like you to offer some on-the-ground perspectives on the stakes of that loss of faith in institutions. I mean, you alluded to it in terms of vaccine skepticism, and I mean, that's a life-and-death thing. We've lost over a million Americans because of a lot of these disinformation campaigns. But your frontline work is on democracy protection. And what are you seeing in places like Georgia when people not only lose faith in democracy, but think that the institution itself uh, is, is undermining their franchise? What is happening in Georgia at polling places when this disinformation hits the streets? So what we're seeing in Georgia, and I think what we're seeing across the country, is like the next step problem of disinformation. The amplification of disinformation was was really like a first step problem. We're now seeing a second step here, which is um, the saturation of disinformation into our communities and what that means and what that looks like. And when you're um, when that disinformation has been saturated into individuals, into communities, and it moves offline. Um, it moves into people that believe these conspiracies, meeting, um, wanting to take matters into their own hands. What we're seeing is, you know, grassroots efforts across the country and in Georgia of people that believe election conspiracies, trying to challenge voters in mass, trying to become uh, or not trying, becoming poll watchers, becoming poll workers, finding ways to disrupt the democratic process. Um, we're seeing them replacing, you know, conservatives on boards of elections with conspiracy theorists who have no interest in certifying elections. That we're going to see the impact of what it looks like when we've saturated this faction of our, of our society with, with, with disinformation. And it's going to look like the a significant disruption of our democratic process. And it's going to um, look like individual vigilantes taking these matters into their own hands in a lot of different places. So we have to massively expand what it means to protect voters in this type of system uh, in this current environment. So, so, so you recently posted on Twitter about these vigilante voter purges. Can you tell us what's going on there? Yes, I can. Absolutely. What we're seeing in Georgia is what we've seen is the consequences of these lies. We saw post-2020 and uh, into 2021, the passing of SB202 in Georgia, one of the most restrictive voting bills passed in the country. One of the components of that of this new law in Georgia is making it far easier for any individual to challenge the ability of, to vote of an unlimited number of voters. So a single individual in Georgia um, can challenge the ability of thousands of people um, to remain on the rolls. And so, and that's despite this process already, uh, a process of voter list maintenance already being executed by the Secretary of State in, in Georgia every single year. This is these um, vigilante efforts to purge voters from the rolls are, are fundamentally unnecessary. But what the law in Georgia allows is for a single person to go into their board of elections and, and challenge thousands of, of voters. And it um, 
we know that it is risking the ability of voters to remain on the rolls because we're seeing individuals have to show up at board of election meetings with two days notice. We're seeing unhoused people um, have to pause their lives within 48 hours to show up at a board of election meeting and plead for their right to vote. Um, And these folks are incredibly distressed as to how a single person that they've never met, never heard of, um, never interacted with can challenge their fundamental right to make their voice heard in in our society. It's an incredibly uh, intimidating and harassing tool that this law has has given um, these vigilante voter purgers in Georgia. And it's, it's, we have to do everything in our power to fight back against it. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources, which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. So, so, so I want to transition to what we actually do about it. You've painted a pretty grim picture, but it's not like we lack agency here. We are players in this drama. And while I hope we can do more than just click on cat pics and baby pictures on Facebook, um, although I love that idea, I'm going to follow your lead. Um, what are the the guidelines. I have a couple in front of me from Fair Fight Action, but there are some pretty simple ground rules for not amplifying disinformation. Can you give us the primer? Yes, absolutely. I think that we need to be much more studious about what we share on our platforms and what we allow to spread. Um, So never amplifying bad information, never amplifying disinformation, no, uh, not sharing these videos of violent rhetoric, of lies, uh, even to debunk it, not even to condemn it, because we know uh, the amplification itself is far more dangerous. And so what we don't want to do is allow um, 
is spread that type of content into our own communities, which is what we end up doing when we spread these things widely. So we're not retweeting, we're not quote tweeting, we're not amplifying in any way um, these things into our network. The second is um, making sure that we are always highlighting not just what these lies are, but why people are, are telling these lies. What are the motivations behind what we're seeing? That's a far more effective way to push back than um, trying to debunk someone. Is trying to uh, uh, is saying that they, hey, they're doing this because they think they're going to lose the election, or hey, we're only seeing this because they're trying to raise money off of you or, or what have you. Those types of responses are far more successful. We want to make sure that we are uh, uplifting positive democratic norms in, in our society. At the end of the day, we are talking about a very small faction of folks that are, are pushing so much of this and making sure that folks know uh, that that is not the norm in a democracy, that is not the norm in our democracy, that the overwhelming number of people reject these claims, reject these ideas. We don't want to make it seem like there is, that that they are just as large as the other side, because at the end of the day, that is fundamentally untrue. But the more we amplify, as I said earlier, the more likely um, people are, are going to believe that it's true. And second, that people are going to believe it's true at a very, very high level. And so making sure uh, that we are are reinforcing democratic norms whenever we can, that we are not amplifying disinformation, that we are in our own communities, uh, that we are not allowing the fact that someone may believe these lies uh, to, that we're not completely cutting them out of our society, that we're leaving them some type of off-ramp to rejoin the broader community uh, because without that type of off-ramp, folks will be pushed deeper and deeper and deeper into these bad spaces. And so we have to treat this like a public health problem and not just push truth, but push reconciliation as a cure to make sure we're lowering the temperature, make sure we're not amplifying what we're seeing and making sure that we are providing off-ramps to the folks that do believe this. I think those are great guidelines and I love the the analogy to a public health crisis but it's really really difficult and I am totally guilty here because sometimes you see something from the extreme right you see a post and your immediate reaction is to call it out because the assumption is that everyone is going to see it the way you do and they'll be as appalled as you are and so you you tag the video and you say look at this isn't this outrageous? We have to call this out. Um, I, I, I hope you have some some sympathy with with that reaction. Um, and you know, you've said it already. It's not the right reaction. Um, but but gosh, how do we train the um, the good guys to not respond so reflexively or emotionally to to the the stuff that's out there? Absolutely. It's a, um, again, it's, it's propaganda, disinformation. Like these are what we push in democratic societies because people are going to, uh, as long as people are free to spread them, they're going to have the intended effect. And so we need to uh, 
um, we can make a lot of progress by making sure that our news organizations, that our, our legitimate news organizations are, are following best practices as it relates to disinformation or not, are being judicious in the headlines that they're using, are, are choosing to um, not amplify content that is meant to manipulate media into spreading that content and being you know, judicious ourselves. I, we have all um, retweeted, pushed out uh, information that we were trying to condemn. And it is going to take a level of education and of responsibility, um, not just ourselves, but um, from these platforms to understand that that is a far more dangerous response than than making sure then uh, that those posts can come down and making sure um, then reporting that tweet or that image is being um, or that video is being against the guidelines of the platforms in, in our community. So uh, I'm not saying it's an easy it's an easy fix. Um, we have all been guilty of it, uh, but we can actually have an impact in what our own community sees by making an effort not to spread that type of, of content. One of the bullets in your list of guidelines says the momentum is on your side. How are you feeling going into 22, beyond that into 24, and longer term? I put a lot of a lot of hope in your generation to fix what our generation messed up, but where is your sense of optimism? Oof, Lord have mercy. Uh, what still gives me hope um what we are what is still true today is that the anti-democratic efforts we are seeing across the board are because we have actually won the war of ideas we've won the culture so many of these uh, fights can no longer be fought on a on a simple policy to policy perspective because the overwhelming amount of this country, the momentum is on our side. They believe in a uh, a progressive future, and so the only response is to deny that majority its ability to exercise its voice. Um, and so we see this attack on our institutions, on voting, on we see. Uh, gerrymandering. We see them use the courts. We see them using incredibly undemocratic ways to push what they are pushing. It is a, uh, and when you combine those anti-democratic efforts with disinformation propaganda, uh, it is in many ways the last gasp of fascism. It is when they have their backs to the wall, um, when uh, they have no other choice. Um, I say all the time that disinformation is a tool for fools and anarchists. When it is your only tool left in the toolbox, when you have lost the war of ideas, you are risking eroding your own support, your own base, your own uh, society, because you have no other choice. And so I think that if we can push through, both in 2022 and 2024, I think we will be in a position to make sure the voices of uh, the overwhelming majority of this country are went out for a very long time. And that's the only reason that they are pushing so hard right now. Their backs are against the wall and they have lost the war of ideas. Well, I share your optimism and we just have to, we have to execute in 22, 24 and beyond. Associate, it's been great having you on. Thank you so much, Ken. I really appreciate it. 
Thanks again to Asosa for joining me. You can find her on Twitter at Asosa underscore Osa. Thanks for listening to Burn the Boats. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcasts.com. We're always looking to improve the show. For updates and more, follow us on Twitter at team underscore Harbaugh. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Burn the Boats is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Our producer is Declan Roars, and Sean Rolhoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.